each of us has a specific and a profound role to play in the healing of the world. Nobody's, nobody's assignment is any more or less important than anyone else's. Thanks to Indeed for supporting The Kathy Heller Show. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Go to indeed.com slash dreamjob to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Hey, welcome back. It's Kathy Heller. Welcome to The Kathy Heller Show. Today is epic. One of my favorite episodes of all time. Marianne Williamson is here and it was just such a gift spending this time with her. I want to go back and listen over and over and take notes because there were just so many gems and more than even what she said, it's how much she exudes what she says. It's how much she is what she says. So I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed and that she was here to spend this time with me. And I'm so happy that you're going to get to hear this conversation. Before we dive in, I just want to remind you that all week this week, I'm going live every day for an hour talking about how to have the most abundant year possible. And we're going to be opening up to the well of beauty and goodness that is here for us to receive. And I'm going to be doing these beautiful trainings every single day this week. Every training comes with a workbook and all of it is free. And if you can't be there live, you can still get the replay if you sign up for free at kathyheller.com slash abundance. So if you want to be with us live, check it out, go join us. And we'll probably also play a couple clips on the podcast to give you a taste here and there. But I'm so excited. I'll be live today and tomorrow all the way till Friday. So I look forward to seeing all of you that will be there. All right. So now Marianne Williamson, she's here. She's a best-selling author, a spiritual thought leader. She's a political activist and a speaker. You've probably heard her name and you probably know her work because she has been a leader in the spiritual world for over three decades. She's authored 14 books, four of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. If you haven't read A Return to Love, then you definitely want to start there. She also wrote a book called The Politics of Love. Marianne also founded Project Angel Food, which is a nonprofit that has delivered more than 13 million meals to ill and dying homebound patients since 1989. She co-founded the Peace Alliance. She ran for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. And she hosts the Marianne Williamson podcast where she's been having meaningful conversations about the challenges that are in the world and what we can do about it. Some of her guests have included Deepak Chopra, James Cameron, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, Reverend Bernice King, Anne Lamott, and so many more great, great souls. So you might want to check that out. Marianne is someone I have admired for so long. I have followed her and having this conversation was like being in an alternate reality. I'll admit that I was feeling a little intimidated before we got on Zoom because sometimes my ego, right, likes to make me feel small. I forget we have moments where the ego is so convincing, but she could not have been kinder. She was so generous, so compassionate, 
And her words are really like spiritual medicine. So I'm deeply honored that I get to share this conversation with all of you. Without further ado, please welcome the phenomenal one and only Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson. I'm just overflowing that you're here right now. I don't even know what to say. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Uh, And here you always are. That is the truth. You're always here, wherever here is. So I want to start with your journey before we like dive into the gifts, the jewels that God just pours through you every second. Were you always connected to that feeling of the divinity? within you that exists. In my book, A Return to Love, I mentioned my grandfather, who was an Orthodox Jew. And when I would go with him uh, to shul sometimes, when the, when the ark would open and he would genuflect, I would see tears in his eyes. And I would start crying. But I don't know, was I crying because I was moved by the opening of the ark, or was I crying because my grandfather was crying? Probably both. And yes, when I was a little girl, I had a thing about saying my prayers at night. It was like a big deal. And it was very organized material. What I said first, when I said the Shema, the whole thing. But it had its downside as well. Because there was a man who was a friend of my parents, and he was going to have open heart surgery. And this was, remember, I was born in 1952. So the story I'm telling was probably when I was like maybe 1960 or something. So open heart surgery was a very new thing. Christian Barnard in South Africa and then Michael DeBakey in Houston. And so when it was very shortly after that all began, whenever that was, and I had a plan. And my plan was that I was going to pray for this man the night before his surgery. And I fell asleep and I forgot. And he died on the operating table. And I really thought it was because I had forgotten to pray for him. So I had some magical thinking that was mixed in with my budding religious fervor. But to the extent that I felt that so strongly and that I even remember it now, uh, it's this weight of responsibility that it had been my fault. You know, clearly I was had an intense prayer life. That's amazing that you felt that as a little girl. And then you found The Course of Miracles and so much opened up for you. What was it that struck you that sort of completely changed the course of your life? Well, The Course in Miracles has no, nor does it claim to have any monopoly on truth. I believe there's one truth with a capital T and it's spoken in all the great religious traditions and um, paths. And the Course in Miracles says it's not a religion. There's no doctrine. There's no dogma. It's based on universal spiritual themes. But it calls itself a psychological mind training. So what happened for me with the Course was that there were a lot of ideas that I had already encountered, even in my own religion. A lot of things that I'd read in Buddhism, Um, things I've read in Joseph Campbell, things I've read in Carl Jung. Many ideas that I already grasped intellectually. Also, there was an amazing book by Jane Roberts called The Nature of Personal Reality, which I think was very pivotal for me 
in leading up to my being open to the Course in Miracles, because it had already informed me that everything comes from the mind. But I didn't know how to put all those things together in a way that allowed me to apply them in practical ways and actually change my life. I think an image that I actually wrote about in Return to Love, I felt that I was climbing up a set of stairs, huge stone stairs on a huge cathedral. And I really wanted to get inside that cathedral. I really wanted to find my way into that space. And my knees are bloody. My elbows are bloody. I get to the top of the stairs and the door would be locked. And I'm let me, I didn't know how to get in. I could never open the door. When I read The Course in Miracles, it opened so easily because what I learned in The Course in Miracles, it's, it's the person in front of you. It's the person you're thinking about right now. If you're seeing guilt in them, if you're focusing on their mistake, if you're focusing on the past, if you're focusing on the future, if you're focusing on guilt in anyone, the door remains locked. If you have a willingness to see this differently, just a willingness to see the innocence in others, to recognize people make mistakes, but their mistake is not who they are, and that things can begin in any given moment because the past and the future are only in your mind, then the door will open. And that revolutionized my thinking and revolutionized my life. You know, the Course in Miracles doesn't claim to be for everybody, but if it's for you, you know it. And because it's got a workbook of 365 daily exercises, it's, it's really a training of your attitudinal muscles, just like you do yoga or go to the gym to train your physical muscles. And you train your physical muscles so that you'll be strong. And then because you're strong, you can move. Training your attitudinal muscles is the exact opposite. You are training yourself to be able to be still. And in the stillness, you find your non-reactivity. You find your capacity not to focus on other people's guilt. You're not spinning out. So training your internal muscles is as important as training your external muscles. And that's really what it's about. And training your internal muscles like training your external muscles, it's simply a matter of, I don't know, what kind of life do you want? Because with the internal muscles, as well as the external muscles, there is gravity. So let's say I'm doing weights, right? So at my age, particularly, if I'm not working to hold the muscles up here, it's headed down. And so the exercise is applying weight to strengthen those muscles. It's very much the same with what goes on internally. There is internal gravity, cynicism, anger, self-pity, victimization, negativity. That's internal gravity. And you work on keeping your internal muscles up so that you can be stronger and have a better life. It brought me to tears before because I think about in the history of civilization, how many human beings have been able 
to stand so much for the truth, for love, for expansion, as you have so few people and do it in such a clear way. I also, I'm Jewish, grew up this way, knew nothing about God, nothing. And I remember reading your books when I was in college and I was like, this is so easy. This makes so much sense. It goes right in. And it led me to a trip to Jerusalem, which I thought was going to be two weeks. And I stayed for three years and I met my rabbi, David Aaron, who loves you, by the way. And um, he taught me if God was the sun, we'd each be a ray of that sun. And we're each a masterpiece, a piece of the master. And it completely changed my life. Like reading your book led me to be able to open up. And I feel so often people have an idea of themselves as being this small, disconnected thing from everything else. And then there's something very far away that is God, but we don't really know how to connect to that. And you changed that for so many people. Could there be a bigger gift that you could give? I don't know. But for anyone who hasn't, for some reason, yet read your work or been exposed to this, how could you help people understand those basic, beautiful truths? Well, to the best of my ability, through my books and my lectures, my book, A Return to Love, I refer to it as the cliff notes of the Course in Miracles. But the perspective that I approach, with which I approach any of my writing or my teaching, is not one in which I'm trying to get a message out. It's one in which I'm trying to get a message in. Yeah. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter how much you know intellectually. The Course in Miracles says that the teachings of the Course begin, in, well, actually it says enlightenment itself begins as abstract understanding. And then it makes a journey without distance from the head to the heart. So if all you have is a set of principles and ideas and you're trying to get them out there, you know, there's a lot of actually evil that's occurred on the planet by people thinking that they understand God and they're going to try to give it to the masses. That's not where I'm coming from. And that's not the message of the Course in Miracles. The message of the Course in Miracles is that we teach through demonstration. I mean, I'm, I'm very honored by the things that you have said about my work in the world. And I'm aware that I'm a human being. I'm not an enlightened master. The Course in Miracles says you're not perfect or you would not have been born, but it is your mission to become perfect here. And I know that God is not waking me up every morning um, telling me to go teach the masses. He's waking up every morning and saying, you know, that conversation you had last night, you want to call and apologize for that? You know, it's all about our own path. Now, as far as my Judaism is concerned, when I first started lecturing on the Course in Miracles, about three, maybe four different rabbis came up to me and said in their own way, you know, you could have found it here. Meaning everything you're talking about, you could have done it as a rabbi. And my response was, nobody taught me. Now, I did come to understand why, and this might relate to your experience as well. After World War II, when you look at the Jews of Eastern Europe, 
who came to the United States. The same percentage of the teachers escaped, the same percentage of the scientists escaped, the same percentage of the business people escaped, the same percentage of the artists escaped. The people who did not escape, stayed there, were the rabbis. And there was even a Yiddish expression, God is not in America. In other words, if the Jewish people are suffering, how can we leave if ever they needed us here to minister unto them? So after World War II, there was a break. Now, when I was growing up in Houston, and it was a conservative shul, there was a strong cultural identity. I was confirmed, but none of the mystical fruit of my religion was fed to me. You know, my parents sent me to Sunday school, but it was just that period historically. Right. Now I understand reading in the Kabbalah, etc. The mystical fruits are within all great religious teachings. So what the Course in Miracles does is it just takes the mystical fruits, gives them in a, an application, a psychological application. And then as the Course in Miracles says, the teachers of God come from all religions and no religion. Yeah. Wow. That's so beautiful. I never thought those ideas, but that makes so much sense that that's why we had to really go seek it out. By the way, I will say, I, my father always told me when I was a little girl, you'll never have a more emotional experience than when you first set foot in Israel. And I don't know why, but it took me 60 years to get there. And once I got there, I've been there five times. So I understand. I didn't go and stay for three years, but something happens. Yeah, something happens. I wound up on a birthright trip and I was mm-hmm. going to come back and I wound up just extending and staying and staying for mm-hmm. for years. And the very first Torah I ever learned when I was there was from a rabbi who's passed, um, Rabbi David Zeller. And he said, the first time a word is used in the Torah, we, we know the context of the word. And the first time the word Shabbat is used is when Abraham is sitting at the foot of the tent. And it says, and Abraham Yashev, which is the root of the word Shabbat, to Shev. And he says, and what we learned is when Abraham sat, the angels appeared. And so the idea of Shabbos is a 24-hour meditation. And if we were to sit and to dwell and to pause, God would appear to us. And I said, I can't believe that's in my own faith. Like I'd never heard anything. And I said, what do I not know? Exactly. And I couldn't stop weeping. And I just stayed and stayed and stayed. I would like to, first of all, I'm so with you, like it's there. But if we're not taught the truth of our own deeper religious, mystical traditions as children, we miss out. But it's not because it's not there. And I pointed that out, by the way, to other Jewish friends that your comments about Judaism just display that you don't know the deeper truths of Judaism. Right. Not They're not a commentary on Judaism. But if we could stay for a moment as uh, Abraham mm-hmm. standing at the tent, right, that Abraham, uh, when he sat, the angels appeared. This is such an important concept today because one of the reasons our world is in trouble is because no one can cult- no one is cultivating stillness everybody's in a state of uh, nobody has any impulse control everybody's spinning out this is a huge issue right now and uh, the french philosopher blaise pascal said every problem in the world derives from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone hmm. 
and especially now because of social media, everybody being so addicted to our tablets, the fact that not just the algorithms, but all the ads, I mean, even if you're not born with ADD, just being on your on the computer enough each day is training you into this ADD state because there's this, I got to look at this, I got to look at that, I can't look at that without looking at the line underneath. The brain was not meant to perform this way. Right. And I had an experience probably around 15 years ago, and it was visiting a family in Florida. And I was staying with them for the weekend, and they were an Orthodox Jewish family, but they were a very modern Orthodox Jewish family. So when you went on a Wednesday or a Thursday, you didn't see anything or experience anything that made you aware that they were Jews, that they were Orthodox, anything. There was nothing like that. Nobody had a wig on, et cetera. But I knew that they were Orthodox, and sundown on Friday approached. Something began to change. And I had really been curious what it was going to be like, because this was a very wired household, very modern household, modern teenage kids, kind of what you expect, you know, like just people running around, the kids doing this, electronics on, et cetera. But so my first thought was, are the kids going to complain? Because I had been told, no, it's serious Shabbat here. They didn't because they were born into it. And something so extraordinary happened. First of all, as you well know, the phone, nobody is to use the phone unless it's to pick someone up for Shabbat. All electronics will be turned off. The car will not be used unless it's to pick someone up for Shabbat dinner. What I saw, and I, I have to tell you, I was worried myself. I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do like a whole day without my checking my phone. I, mean, I don't know what this is going to be like. I was worried. What happened in that house for 24 hours was so profound. I saw teenagers reading to the, the little five-year-old brother and sister. I saw 20-year-olds asking 75-year-olds, tell me about how you met grandpa. Oh. I saw parents looking at, gazing into each other's eyes. That is when the angels gather. The Course of Miracles define the angels as the thoughts of God. And I saw the recalibration that occurred, the emotional recalibration, the psychological recalibration. You know, the Course in Miracles says religion and psychotherapy at their height are the same thing. Yeah. And to have that experience of what Shabbat can mean, not as a ritual, but as a deep psychological, emotional, and spiritual realignment, like a chiropractic adjustment was so profound and I've never forgotten it. And I've understood in my life how important it is brain rest. Yeah. It's unbelievable what you're saying. And it gives me goosebumps to hear you speaking this way, but yes, we've lost our attention. And I think that beautiful quote, what you were saying that Pascal said about sitting quietly in a room alone I want you to talk about the ego and our actual higher consciousness, because I think what happens, the reason it's so hard to sit is because the mind tricks us into the illusion of the separateness. And then all the fear comes in and all the worry and all the doubt. And so we don't have an experience of ourself other than this ego state. And it's such a scary experience oftentimes because it's separate and constantly looking to protect us and worrying. And we need to be able to move into connection with true self. 
but not everybody even knows that it's there, or the awareness that it exists. And so you speak so much about this knowing and the distinction between the two. I'm just wondering if you could help us understand that. Before we go there, I want to point out, just before we completely get off the subject, there is an article out there today by Johan Hari. Johan Hari, who is the one who wrote the book Lost Connections. And it's about something like your attention didn't collapse, it was stolen. But it's really good about how social media has decimated our attention span and our ability to be quiet. And it's something for all of us, of course, to to look into. Of course, a lot of people have seen that documentary a social dilemma, et cetera. I mean, it's something all of us need to look at. I know I certainly have. I mean, there's a clearly an addictive aspect to our connection to our tablets, et cetera, and really recognizing what it's doing to our brains, what it's doing to our, to our experience of community when we're more focused on the screen than we are on the person who is sitting next to us. Yeah. Okay. Now, going on to the next topic, you mentioned a while ago, uh, a few minutes ago, that your <laughs> rabbi had talked about each of us being a ray in the sunbeam, a sunbeam in the mind of God. This is what the Course in Miracles says. The Course says, you are like a sunbeam, thinking you are separate from other sunbeams. You're like a wave in the ocean, thinking you're separate from other waves. But there's actually no place where one sunbeam stops and another sunbeam starts. There really is no spot where one wave stops and another wave begins. What we have is the thought that we are separate from that which in fact cannot be separate from us. Now, think of the different psychological and emotional orientation. Depending whether I think of myself as one wave separated from all the other waves in the ocean versus my experience of myself, others, and life itself, if I think of myself as a wave that is connected to every other wave. So if I think of myself as a wave, a little wave in this huge ocean, separate from all the other waves, how can I not live in constant terror that I will be obliterated by another wave? How can I not live in constant terror that I will be annihilated on some level by the hugeness of the ocean? Now, the other possibility, that which arises from truth is, there's no place where I stop and it starts. I'm part of this ocean. I move, it moves. It moves, I move. I'm part of this whole thing. I'm huge. The power of the ocean is in me. And I'm part of the power of the ocean. And there's nothing to fear in the ocean. It is my identity. Which life do you want? So the Course in Miracles says that every thought we think Now, this is really big. The Course says that every thought we think creates form on some level, that every thought is a cause that has an effect. Wow. Free will means the freedom to think whatever you want to think. If you think with love for yourself and others, you are literally co-creating with God. It says God has created the world with the skeletal arrangement of the law of cause and effect. It's the the skeleton that holds it all together. For our protection, the Course says, you put out love, your life's going to work. More than not. Now, on the other hand, I don't have to. Free will means I can think with love, but I can choose not to. And at every moment, you do make a choice. You make a choice consciously or you make a choice unconsciously. But every single moment, my heart's either open or my heart's closed. 
In the moment when it's open in love, I'm co-creating with God. And the Course in Miracles says miracles, which is a shift in perception from fear to love and the form of love that then comes back at you because all thought creates form on some level. That is righteous, right use living. Mm. If in some moment, I believe that I'm separate, which is what the world tells me, you're over there and I'm over here. Therefore, on some level, I'm afraid of you. Therefore, on some level, I better protect myself against you. Therefore, I am always looking for the fault in you, something I can judge in you so that I can feel maybe I'm better because I think the world is a zero sum. I'm lost in this madness of that filter and that perspective. And the Course in Miracles says that love is to fear what light is to darkness. So darkness isn't a thing. It's just the absence of a thing. And you don't get rid of it by fighting the darkness. You get rid of it by turning on the light. Hmm. So if my heart is closed, I'm going to repel miracles. I'm going to deflect miracles. I'm going to be lost in my own personal hell of having to deal with all these things that are happening because I had a closed heart. And those are the two parallel universes. One, the world which we have an understanding of who we are in relation to God, others, and self. The name for that is heaven. Or the world in which we're completely confused about who we are and we think we have to defend ourselves and we have to attack and we're basically coming at the world from attack and defense and fear. That's called hell. That's it. And unfortunately, because the world, the Course says, is dominated by a thought system based on fear, rather than love, on the belief that we are separate, which is what the ego mind is. It's just a belief that we're separate. We are not only lost in our own personal health, but we continue to manifest in the world, whether it has to do with environmental destructiveness, whether it has to do with war, whether it has to do with poverty. We keep manifesting all these horrors that emanate from the thought that we're not one with each other and that we're not here to be reverent. If you're reverent towards the earth, you don't treat it that way. If we're reverent towards each other, you don't let children starve. If we're reverent towards each other, you don't casually go to war. <laughs> I mean, this, this, we're insane. You know, Gandhi said the problem with the world is that humanity is not in its right mind. But we can't heal everything. See, that, this is what's so fascinating to me, is that the Course says God has a plan. Don't worry about it. God has a plan. That God has an answer to every problem the moment the problem occurs like a GPS. If you take the wrong road, the GPS will automatically re uh, recalibrate and you'll take another road. So even now, and I think we all would agree it's the 11th hour, but it's not midnight yet. The plan is that we have to change things on the outside, but we are limited in our capacity to change things on the outside to the extent to which we are unchanged on the inside. And that's really the philosophy of nonviolence as articulated by Mahatma Gandhi and then Martin Luther King. When King said, self-purification must precede direct political action. And the Course in Miracles says, miracles are everyone's rights, but purification is necessary first. Mm -hmm. So you and I are taught to wake up in the morning and decide what we want to do today. The Course says, no, wake up in the morning and decide who you want to be today. Who do you have to forgive before the day even starts? Do you have anything from yesterday you need to atone for? Anything you want to look at about yesterday where, if you're honest with yourself, you could have played that better? Anything you need to make amends for? Bless everybody you're going to meet today that you know you're going to meet. 
bless everybody today that you don't even know you're going to meet. Whatever you do, try to show up with an open heart, not phone it in, really be present. And then you'll know what to do. And not only that, even more importantly, you'll be the person capable of doing it. And if enough of us begin to live in that space, whatever portal gets us there, we're going to turn this thing around and the world will change in time. I feel like that should be required listening for every human being on this planet. I want to repeat it every single morning. It was so, it's like a symphony. Listening to you speak is music and it goes back to what you said about rest and pause and Shabbat, because it's what you just said. It's who you're being, not what you're doing. And if we don't know how to be, to drop in to that place where we let go of this constant spinning mind, and instead we are in the state of open-hearted love, peace, right? And that's flowing through us. That has to be cultivated. This conversation is magic. But before we keep going, I just want to thank our sponsors. It's a new year and you deserve a fresh start in all parts of your life, even at work. Take your team to the next level with a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. That's Indeed. Indeed is your go-to hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. You can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you can get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can even invite them to apply right away. According to Indeed data, with Indeed Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post. And candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. I've gone through the hiring process myself, and I know that it can be a challenge sometimes. In fact, it can just feel like a second job. So I love that Indeed makes it easy to find the candidates who are going to be a best fit for the team. This way, I have always more time and more bandwidth to focus on my podcast and my programs and my next book. And those are the things that I really want to be spending time on. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash dream job. Get a $75 credit at indeed.com slash dream job, indeed.com slash dream job offer valid through March 31st terms and conditions apply need to hire. You just need indeed. One of the things that comes up as a thought that seems to be a great hurdle for my audience. I hear it over and over again. And you, boy, do you speak about this is the feeling of imposter syndrome, of not being enough, of wanting so much to give to the world, but feeling unworthy or inadequate to share somehow, not ready enough, not have enough degrees. What do you say to someone who is is caught in that feeling? Well, from a spiritual perspective, the ego is very sly. It appears to be modest and humble, but actually it's very arrogant. Because if you are a creation of God, who are you to be not enough? Yeah. So the Course of Miracles says the presence of the feeling that you're not enough is a misunderstanding of who you are. You, you yourself as a body, as a one lifetime. Yeah, I mean, it's true. What, what can you do? The spiritual notion, however, is that you have given your hands and you've given your feet and you've given your mind and you've given your heart. You've given your tongue and you have prayed, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? Yeah. What would you have me say and to whom? And it is, as Jesus said, the Father within me doeth the work. It is not about what you can do. You're just the lamp. The house is wired for electricity. Okay? 
it doesn't matter whether the lamp is what color it is, what shape it is, how old it is, what design it is. All that matters is whether or not the lamp is plugged in. The lamp can't create light. The light, which is God, is the wiring in the house. Your job is to plug in. And when you plug in, it's not about you. You're just the faucet. You're not the water. Don't flatter yourself. Nobody thinks you are the water. Right? You're just a faucet. So this imposter, you are an imposter. If you're going out there like, I can do much. You of yourself, identifying just with ego, you know, you're just like everybody else. The Course in Miracles says, all of the children of God are special and none of the children of God are special. You are no more or less potentially brilliant than anyone else. All of us are those sunbeams that come from the mind of God. God does not create junk. And how much light, understanding, inspiration, hope, and healing you can put out into the world doesn't even have to do with you. It has to do with the level of your receptivity. It's so gorgeous. So really, it's it, the most humble thing you can do is to allow for the maximum amount of light exactly. to flow through you. Exactly. That's why, you know, that quote from Return to Love, our deepest fear is not that yeah. we're inadequate. That's why I think that that paragraph caught on. Because saying, who are you not to be brilliant? I mean, it's not about you. <laughs> Human beings carry within us a divine spark. There's nothing for you to take personal credit for. There's nothing for you to apologize for either. It's so surreal since I do have an ego and I'm sitting in a body to hear you quoting back your quote, which is like the most quoted quote I've ever heard in my life. And we're just chatting about it. It's it's surreal. Well, I it, listen, I said to you, I was in a book of a ton three weeks ago. I wish I had known you. <laughs> I would have called. I feel like I've landed on the moon. Like I'm just sitting on the moon. Like we're just dangling our feet, just chatting. That's how I feel. So Here's another one that comes up for our audience all the time, which is it might be one thing for me to start to comprehend that it would be humble of me to to serve. But the idea of receiving, of radical reception, the amount of people who write into me and say, who am I to allow myself to have wealth or to receive love? It fe- there's a feeling of shame around receiving okay. If the experience of wealth is only to make you happy and enable you to go shopping, then it's reasonable that you have guilt around it. If the reception of wealth or the reception of any other material good is no different than the flower receiving the rays of the sunlight or the flower receiving the rain, the plants receiving the rain, where you realize I'm receiving whatever abundance the universe ascribes to me so that I can perform at the highest level to be a blessing on the world. The point of money is so that you won't have to worry about money. Yeah. The point of having money is so that you don't have to slow down. And any power, privilege, money, fame, success, is all the issue, the Course in Miracles says, of whether something is holy or not, has to do with the purpose the mind ascribes to it. If it's so that you can do more for more people, and once you understand how the laws of consciousness works, you only get to receive what you give away. So the Course in Miracles says you become generous out of self-interest. So the more you receive, the more you can give. 
And then you don't feel guilty. You feel like, oh, it's so exciting what we'll be able to do. That is such a beautiful way of looking at it. And it's true because as the Maharal, a great Jewish commentator says, one candle can light an unlimited amount of candles without losing its own flame. So abundance only creates more abundance. The, the if more you use it that way. Now, if you look at the economic injustice that is so endemic of the United States today, it's because there's so much hoarding of wealth. Right. There's so much movement of wealth into the hands of a very few who are not using it necessarily to increase the abundance of others. Right. That's economic injustice. Right. And that is that is not of the light. Right. And that is coming from that place of feeling separate rather than understanding the whole. Correct. This being a new year and things being as challenging as they've been, how can we allow in more miracles into our life? Even though the situation is challenging, we are here for a reason. God has sent help. God has sent you. Your job is to make yourself miracle-minded. In other words, to make of yourself a receptacle and a channel for the miracles God will work to heal the world. You do that, number one, who am I not forgiving? Wow. Who am I not forgiving? And to say, I'm willing to see them differently. I'm willing to see their innocence. The second is to cultivate the stillness, the quiet time. I don't know of any, any religious or spiritual tradition that does not speak of the Shabbat-like experience, but particularly every morning, by the way. The Course yeah. in Miracles says five minutes with God's spirit in the morning will guarantee he will be in charge of your thought forms throughout the day. If you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is go to the newspaper and all the ain't it awfuls of the world and the texts and the emails, then you are downloading the consciousness of fear that dominates this world. Go to God first, whether it's your, your religion, the Course, transcendental meditation, mindfulness, whatever it is, whatever it is, give yourself that mini Shabbat experience every morning. Allow your consciousness to align with the good news before you go out there to face the bad news. And another one in the course is that you are 100% responsible for your experience. And until you realize that, you will not be able to change your experience. So in other words, things happen to us in our individual lives and collectively. The question is, who do I choose to be in the space of what's happening? Am I going to be at the effect of what's happening and a victim of what's happening? Or do I sign up and say, God, use me to help change what's happening? And then once again, forgive, admit, acknowledge, and work on your own character defects. Try to be the woman or the man that God would have you be so that God can use you because the world is in trouble and we're here to heal it and we have it within us, the capacity to do so. The Course in Miracles says that the people on the earth who've achieved the most have achieved a fraction of what each of us is capable of. You're spitting in the face of God when you hold yourself to the notion of limited possibility. What a gorgeous, gorgeous statement. And you said earlier that our thoughts all create an effect in the world. Of course, as every thought we think creates form on some level. So that's how, you know, the word discipline and the word disciple 
come from the same root. And what, you know, one of the things that the Course says is you achieve so little because your thoughts are undisciplined. So emotional, we really need right now emotional discipline, psychological discipline. You know, there's a place where processing turns into spewing. Mm -hmm. There's a place where understanding and trying to get what's happening turns into self-indulgence. You know, we have to build sacred containers. That's why, you know, in friendship, in therapy, in religious practice, we all have to have more internal boundaries, I think. We need to learn to not indulge certain words, certain attack thoughts, judgment, blame. Not that we're bad if we go there. It's that we're setting the trajectory and the unfoldment of events in our lives on a path that we probably do not want if we go there. And it's, it can be hard to find the sweet spot, particularly today when systems of injustice must be called to task. They must be, you know, but to do that without personally demonizing anyone takes work, but that's got to be the goal. You said before that to have these limitations is like spitting in the face of God and so often to believe in them. And you're right. That's a good correction. And people will write to me all the time and say, but I want to be quote unquote realistic and not allowing themselves to give a possibility permission because they're looking at what has already happened in the past in their life, evidence of what's happened or what's possible for other people's lives. What do you say to that? Because I think about you, I think about Oprah Winfrey, I think about people who nobody came along and tapped you on the shoulder and said, here's your permission slip to unleash this gorgeous gift inside of you. You just did. And so it was. And look at the legacy that you continue to leave. Talk about un- unending possibility that people keep coming back to, well, it's not realistic. Look at what's already happened in my life. So that must be what would happen in the future. God's not looking at anybody and saying, I'd love to give you a brilliant life, but your mom was an alcoholic, so my hands are tied. I mean, God, <laughs> the infinite can do the infinite. In The Course of Miracles, you keep using the word realistic. In The Course in Miracles, they talk about the word real with a little r and the word real with a big r. Nothing in the mortal world as we experience these three dimensions is ultimately real. It's all dust to dust. It's all this huge mortal hallucination. As Einstein said, time and space are aspects of our illusions of consciousness, albeit, he said, persistent ones. So, What's realistic, according to this world, means that you're choosing to stay within a context that is ultimately unreal. What is real with a capital R is that in the presence of love, all things are possible. Now, Oprah Winfrey did arrive in my life and give me a permission slip. But what preceded (laughs) that was my understanding of what's ultimately real. It wasn't my business whether what chosen instrument it came through. That's right. But I I was just kind of almost an idiot savant. I was just, you know, I love the Course in Miracles. You know, the thing about my career, Kathy, is my career didn't exist when my career began. 
There was no career niche. So my parents would say, finish school and teach comparative religion, be an academic, or your father and I will send you to rabbinical school. I was like, no, none of those seem right. Well, what are you going to do for a living? I don't know. I'll just continue to be a temporary secretary. I just want to go out there and talk about the Course in Miracles. So you can see my parents would say, be realistic. But I was like, no, I don't want to do those things. But let me tell you about this lecture I'm going to give. Ah! My mother's, you'll love this one. Love Jewish girl to Jewish girl. So my mother says this to me. So let me get this straight. I said, yeah. She said, you're going to stay in California. I said, yeah. And you're going to give lectures. I said, yeah. About Jesus. Yeah. I to know. Gentiles. <laughs> And then I said, well, some, yeah. And then there's this long pause. And then she says, what will you wear? Oh, my God, dying. And then, and then, and then she was really trying to be nice. And she would call and say, you know, listen, I think because you're going to be talking to a lot of Christians in the audience, I think your, your skirts are a little short. I think that it would be better. And she starts like trying to counsel me and help me and how I should probably dress, right, to get it right. So... Yeah, oh my so God. I wasn't even thinking about anything other than serving love. I mean, I was really, I got it. I got that thing. I read The Course in Miracles, and this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I didn't feel like the issue was for me to be a rabbi. I didn't feel like the issue was for me to be a, an academic. I wasn't thinking about it. So when my parents would tell me to be realistic, I just... I was too taken by what I was doing. Then the AIDS pandemic uh, exploded. And I was just serving. I mean, I really was ignorant in my innocence. So then the Course of Miracles would say the universe had Oprah Winfrey show up because you were really being realistic. My only thought was uh. the sharing of abundance. And then it happens. And that has been my experience ever since. If, if you're doing something for the right reasons, you're doing what your heart would have you do. So this is it. If you're doing what your heart would have you do and you're doing it for the right reasons, the universe will take care of fueling your car. The universe will take care of making sure you have the money to do it. You have the people to help you. The Course in Miracles says, is it reasonable to assume I would give you a job to do and then not provide you with the means of its accomplishment? The Course also says the presence of fear is a sure sign that you're trusting in your own strength. Oh, it's so beautiful. Isn't that incredible? It's so beautiful. And it's amazing. It comes full circle for me because I applied to rabbinical school and decided not to go and didn't know how this would work. And here I am, like, and this is my your, Bima, like getting to talk to millions exactly of people. Right. That's exactly right. This is your Bima. And getting you to be right. with you, this sweet, incredible punim, like sitting in front. It's like, beyond, beyond. But I'm just curious because you are such a star that I, I don't even think of you as anything other than the biggest household name there is. So I, you just reminded me of that period in your life before, the before part. So did you just start speaking and then it just, pe more people kept coming and coming and coming and coming and then you get a publishing deal and then Oprah well, shows yeah. up in your life? Well, what happened there was, Yes, I was speaking at a place called the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles. All I wanted to do was talk about The Course in Miracles. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to do that. And they had these little lecture series. It was a metaphysical center, and I was thrilled. I was a temporary secretary, and I so I was able to pay my bills and live in an, an apartment, and I thought life was really good. My parents 
didn't because well, what are you going to do? <laughs> right. But, and there was no real career niche, but I was not I, concerned. Yeah, I was not concerned. And also, this is where I get my strong feelings about what's happening in the country and economically, et cetera. You could live on not much then. Yeah. Which is different for young people today. But AIDS happened. And I was living in Los Angeles. And AIDS exploded onto the scene. And it wasn't like medicine, wasn't like the medical field wasn't trying. They were. It wasn't like Western medicine wasn't trying, but they kept coming up empty. And this disease was ravaging people. And once you were diagnosed, you had a very small chance of surviving. So Western medicine is trying, but not coming up with anything for a while. And the organized religious institutions were eerily silent because they had to get over their own stuff about homophobia, whatever. All I know is there was silence. And here was this woman, then young, 31 years old, who was talking over these lectures about a God who loves you no matter what and miracles. So gay men in Los Angeles at that time really gave me my career because they started coming to my lectures. And then those lectures became a place where people could meet. And we talked about God's love and being there for each other and the miracles that happen. And we don't know who's going to live and who's going to die, but we can make sure that nobody will be lonely because we're all going to be there for each other. And then I started a center where we could, people could gather who were ill and same with in New York. So, yeah. So then somebody told me you should write a book about these things. And I said, I wasn't, you know, this is a story that your listeners might like as well. I've been giving lectures in Los Angeles. And one night I was giving a talk in San Francisco. It was a Thursday night. And I was having dinner before my talk with a man named Jerry Jampolsky, who was this fantastic. He was a psychiatrist. He wrote the first book about the Course in Miracles. And he said to me, you know, you should write a book you know, you're giving all these lectures on the Course in Miracles. They're really fantastic. You should write a book. I said, well, other people have told me that, but I don't feel pregnant with a book. He said, well, it's all in those little, we had cassette tapes in those days. He said, it's all in those cassette tapes. You give lectures uh, once or twice a week. It's all in your cassette tapes. That's your book. I said, well, I don't know how to get that material from the tapes onto the page. He said, let's just join in consciousness. Let's join here in consciousness right now that there is someone out there who knows how to get the material from your cassettes to the page. That was a Thursday night in San Francisco. Two days later, I'm in, uh, I give a talk on Saturday morning in Los Angeles. A man comes up to me afterwards, says, I'm a literary agent. Have you thought about writing a book? I said, well, actually, yes, here's my phone number. Now in those days it was before like voicemail. So I don't know if he ever called or not, but I never heard from him. Five days after that, one week to the day after my dinner with Jerry Jampolsky in San Francisco, I'm giving a talk on the Course in Miracles in New York. And there's a man standing in line to talk to me. I looked at him and I thought, I have destiny with that man. He got up to the line. He said, my name is Al Lohman. I'm a literary agent. Have you ever thought of writing a book? I said, well, yeah, actually, people have been talking about it, but I don't feel pregnant with a book. I don't know how to give birth to a book. He said, 
it's all of those tapes you make. It's all of the material in these lectures. I said, but I don't know how to get it from the tapes to the page. He said, well, I can help you do that. And he became my literary agent and Return to Love when it came out was the fifth largest selling book in the United States that year. And interestingly enough, when the book was being auctioned, it was a man in San Francisco who said, she's really hot in the gay community. There's some buzz about this woman Buy that book. And that was just because I had shown up to serve. The last thing I would have ever thought when I started being there was that I could get a book out of this. That stuff didn't even exist. And that's why it makes me a little unhappy and sad to see how many people start trying to strategize career paths from a metaphysical perspective, because that's the difference between magic and miracles. Magic is where you try to use metaphysical principle to get what you want. Miracles is where you say to God, universe, love, use me however you want. That's the spiritual mountaintop, not trying to use these things as techniques. What just brought me to tears for like the fifth time is when you said love for no reason. And that's really what you're saying was the engine behind all of this. And I think for so many people, they don't know the experience of love for no reason. So they don't know how to give it to themselves and they don't know how to give it away because love is something people think is earned. And if you earn love, then somebody loves you for a reason. That's not love because love is just given. And we have to understand what you just said, that love is not for a reason. So we have to learn how to embody that for ourselves. Love is who you are. It's not even learning to embody it. It is learning to embody it. But preceding that is the realization that's who you are. Oh, we when are. we are loving, we are literally being who we are. So yeah. the only way to be comfortable Beautiful. in your skin is to inhabit your inner body. Yes. You can't be happy when you are in any other state. I wrote a book called The Law of Divine Compensation, which is about love and money and spirituality and work, I understand how, you know, the consciousness that dominates this planet is so wrong-minded. The Course in Miracles says the thinking of God is 180 degrees away from the thinking of the world. So the Course in any serious path is a journey of dismantling the thought system based on fear that dominates the world and accepting instead a thought system based on love, which lights up the world. The Course in Miracles defines light as understanding. So before we come to a conclusion, I could talk to you forever. Your most recent book, A Politics of Love, and you started a podcast, which is also really allowing for some of those ideas to come through. What do you want people to understand about the way you see this new American revolution and politics and it being guided by love and those principles? That it's possible. That it's possible. You know, the political system creates this illusion that it's very complicated. This is where I think women have such a role to play. If a, a mother in her house would, or, or do you have children, Kathy? Three little girls. Okay. Are you married? Yeah. Okay. So if your husband, and I'm sure this would never happen, says to you, Kathy, listen, I got these plants. And so I have to tell you, I'm afraid. But in order to do that, we're just, we're not going to feed the kids for a few days. 
you would say, no, let me explain this to you. We are feeding the children. This is not negotiable. It would be not even conceivable that your husband would be allowed to do anything before these kids are fed. Tens of millions of American children are food insecure. 12,000 children on this planet starve every day, even though there's no dearth of food. This is not complicated. If the women of America alone stood up and said, oh, no, mm-mm, mm-mm, this stops right now in our country, the way we would do in our home. What do you mean you're not going to feed the kids? No, we're going to feed the babies. Then we'll talk about everything else. We need to become fierce mothers. What do you mean that tens of millions of kids are going to go to school where they don't even have the supplies to teach them how to read? And that means that their chances for high school graduation are drastically diminished and their chances of incarceration someday are drastically decreased. Uh-uh, that's not going to happen. Right. We have to become those women in our country and in our world that we already are in our own lives. Like, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. And you know what you're doing with all those pesticides? that are putting chemicals in the air. And we're not even sure if that has to do with autism and every other kind of disease. Uh, That's not going to happen. And you know everything else and just down the line. If we rise up, because we're all like your sweet little head, don't you worry your sweet little head about that because we're handling that. No, they're not handling it. Our democracy is hanging by a thread. Our planet, our environment is hanging by a thread. But we've had this magical thinking that, oh, our democracy will be okay. Actually, not it could die. Oh, the species will be okay. Actually, not necessarily. You continue to play recklessly with things like nuclear bombs, we could die. And people are getting like, oh my God, but we're going to have to stage an intervention. And that's what's going to have to come next. Because our entire species is like on the Titanic headed for the iceberg, whether the iceberg is weather catastrophe, nuclear catastrophe, biomedical catastrophe. I mean, let's be really clear. This is a time for us to be very mature, very sober. Now, as with everything else you and I have talked about here, what should we do? That's not the first question. First question is, who do we have to be? And if we make ourselves, if we decide I'm a woman and I will not act like a little girl, I'm a man, I will not act like a little boy. We've had a prolonged post-adolescence. All of us are wounded but you can make a choice in life. I will not act from my wounds. I will work on it, but I can choose my strength even in places where I know I can be weak. When you look at the people who have changed history, and that would include Kathy, whether you're talking about Abraham, whether you're talking about any of the great, you know, part of one of the things that the Old Testament has that the New Testament doesn't, and that the Jews have, is a deep understanding that even the people who've done the greatest things had their shadows, had their darks. I mean, wrestling with God, the Talmudic tradition is wrestling with God, not this everybody pops out perfect. I mean, we, we can't wait till we're perfect people to save the world. It's a, very much a tenet in the Course in Miracles. Give your life to God while you're still a mess. Don't say, when I get it all together, I'll give my life to God and ask him to use me for some great purpose. No, give your life to God while you're still a mess and look what he can do. It's unbelievably holy that you have shown up in the middle of this time. You have so much that you could be doing and to raise your hand and to have taken a seat on that dais 
and to put these words into the ears of people who may not have been going to look and seek for you, it's medicine. You've given us and you continue to give us medicine. And if everyone were just to really allow in the truth that you share, in four minutes, we would have a world that would drop the ego and come together. And I love what you said, because it's the possibility that it can be different. And it's incredible that you are willing to be a part of that mission, because that is not a simple thing to do. You know, Kathy, first of all, again, thank you for your very kind and generous words. There are times in history, and the 60s was such a time, when great social change was led by soloists. Mm. And that's not the image or the context for social change that we need to be thinking about now. If the revolution, the social, political, economic revolution is led by soloists, the system knows how to handle the soloists, including shooting them. That's not the zeitgeist of this moment. The zeitgeist of this moment is collective, a collective rising up, how you change, like your podcast, my this, Everybody who's listening has a platform of some kind, your family, your parenthood, your marriage, your community involvement. Everybody has a platform. That's the context for the change now is how each and every one of us are rising up. The only difference between me and you, Kathy, is I've been around longer. That's the only difference going on here. And for many of the people that you've read is that I, I'm older. So I started reading these books sooner. That's the only difference. It's a half a step ahead in time. So more accumulated experience, but it's all of us. And it's a, it's a real different model of social change, but that's the one we have to get in our head. Otherwise, it's a very sly way that we can avoid our own personal responsibilities because somebody else is going to do it. And uh, everybody listening should realize it's as much about them as it is about you. I'm sure they look at you and think, oh, she has this huge podcast, 25 million downloads, et cetera. No, 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 no. None of us. The Course in Miracles says each of us, each of us has a specific and a profound role to play in the healing of the world. Nobody's, nobody's assignment is any more or less important than anyone else's. It's incredible. And it's so true. Like we are each needed. And it's amazing to me how everybody has a different fingerprint because there's no evolutionary need for that. But it's you, you have an imprint that you have to make. And without it, the world is not whole. The mistakes we've made are as much a part of what we learn from as our successes. Our failures inform us. Our weak spots are part of it. God takes all of it. God takes all of it as long as we give it to him, the God of our understanding. He can use even the places where we're broken to help make the world a stronger place. So what's one thing that who's ever listening right now could do today to help put this beautiful puzzle back together? Take out a piece of paper and write down the names of three people, if there are three, that you, towards whom you hold judgmental thoughts, who, when you think of them, you focus on what you perceive to be their guilt rather than their innocence, who you see as a reason for you not having the life you want. And tell God of your understanding, I am willing to see them differently. That's the entry point right there. Most beautiful assignment I've ever heard. 
Tell us where we can follow your podcast, where we can subscribe. I know you have a, a beautiful membership. I got your meditation today. Where can we follow you? Okay. Thank you. Uh, if you go to marianewilliamson.substack.com, that's Substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, marianewilliamson.substack.com. If you go to marianne.com, you can sign up on my mailing list. And, you know, I'm on all the other platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I even started TikTok. So I saw know, that. I'm, I'm easy enough to find. That's not a problem. You're so exquisite. And by the way, you're so radiant and gorgeous. I really feel like because your inner world is so beautiful, your outer is like, you're one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. And I was the ego of me. I was so intimidated today. And because you are so integrated and real, you're so loving. You make such a space. Like it's such an incredible gift and an honor to just drink you in. And I, I, I know that the, the, what we've seen, the plans that God has for you, it's just, there's no end to how much good you're bringing to this world. And honestly, I don't, I don't know what to say, but I'm, I'm just humbled and honored and gifted by this conversation. Well, I'm so glad that we met. Thank you so much for what you said. I feel like next time I have a really bad day and I'm really like spinning out or something, I need to call you. Just put you on FaceTime. Just say, Kathy, this is, you know, this is me too. I'm here for it. I'm so here for it. God bless you, darling. It was really wonderful meeting you. And I, I hope that we can stay in touch and all that stuff. Oh my gosh. I would love it. We'll put links to your podcast and to everything else. And um, oh my gosh, it would be the greatest gift in the world to stay in touch with you. So however I can support you. you. I'm there. Thank you. Thank you so much for today. Uh, I still can't believe that conversation happened and how beautiful it was. Here are the takeaways. Number one, the power of the ocean is in you. You're part of the ocean. There's nothing to fear. It's your identity. Number two, every thought we think creates form on some level. Every thought has an effect. Number three, don't wake up and ask what you want to do. Wake up and decide who you want to be. Number four, you can only receive what you give away. Number five, we are here for a reason. God has sent help. He sent you. Your job is to make yourself miracle-minded. Make yourself a receptacle and channel for the miracles that God will work to heal the world. Number six, if you're doing what your heart would have you do, and you're doing it for the right reasons, the universe will give you the means to accomplish it. Number seven, the presence of fear is a sure sign that you're trusting in your own strength. Number eight, love for no reason. Love is who you are. And number nine, each of us has a specific and profound role to play in the healing of the world. Nobody's assignment is any more or less important than anyone else's. Ugh. I'd love to know which one of those takeaways is your favorite because they're all so powerful. I can't even choose. I would love to see you guys share this episode today. Share about it on your Instagram, post about it, share it with a friend, email it. It is so important that people hear this kind of conversation and that we replay these truths over and over again. I say it all the time, but I mean it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I know that your time is the most precious thing in the world and you're spending it here. So I don't take that for granted. We have so many great episodes coming. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if you know someone who would love this conversation, who's a fan of Marianne's, then 
share the episode, email it, text the link, whatever you can do, because there's no doubt that this can help so many people. If you do share it on Instagram, please tag me at kathy.heller because I love to see it and tag Marianne at Marianne Williamson, because I want her to see what this community is about. And I know that she'll be really touched. Also, I'm doing a five-day free workshop. It's called Most Abundant Year. You can join me every day this week, or you can be sent the replays. Either way, just go to kathyheller.com slash abundance so you can be a part of it. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song and we'll be sharing some highlights for the challenge throughout the week. So if you don't see me there live, then you'll hear from me a sneak peek tomorrow. So many times I chose to run. So many times I held my tongue. I held my tongue. Never saying what I needed to. Scared they walk away. And I would lose. Yeah, I would lose. But now. Got the heart of a hero